Truly Deadly. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Ella Lynch. Chapter 16. How to Catch a Bullet. I let go of Sarah's arm and put the top back on the needle tip of the pen. She seemed confused. You and me both, sister. Your old life is done, I said, tucking the pen away in my jacket pocket. Stick to your original plan. No friends or family. I extended the handle on the case and tossed her the cute grey Macintosh from the back of the dresser chair. What? Why? Why are you doing this? She asked, unmoved. Don't question. Just go. Oh, okay, she said, still taken aback by the sudden reprieve. Sarah slid off the bed and into her shoes. She worked her way into the coat, grabbed the case and walked, stopping short of the bedroom door. You need to go too, she said. Why? What did you do? I asked. Without answering, she disappeared through the doorway. As her case thumped down the stairs, I noticed a red light blinking inside the safe. I opened one of the bedroom windows overlooking the leafy suburban street. Sarah threw her case in the boot of a silver Audi A3 and backed out of the drive in a hurry. She took off down the road, tyres screeching. My attention switched to the watercolour grey sky. A dot. A sound. A helicopter. Dark blue vans pulling up either side of the house, a few numbers down. A heavily armed tactical unit streamed out and crouched in single file against walls and hedges as next-door neighbours were pulled out of their homes and moved a safe distance down the street. I drew the weapon from my shoulder holster. Don't bother, Philippe. You're done for. Put your hands up and pack your bags for max security. I ran into the back bedroom in time to see a second tactical unit filing around the house in their heavy-duty boots. They gathered around the back door part of a choreographed raid from the front, the rear and above, helicopter blades beating thunderously over the roof of the house. Okay, this was officially some scary shit poops. I bound down the stairs and vaulted over the banister into the hallway. I opened a utility cupboard under the staircase and loosened the head of a copper pipe. There was a loud hiss and a headache-inducing whiff of gas. I kicked open the door to the basement, flying down the rickety wooden steps. I hit the dirty concrete floor just as both police units crashed through the front and back of the house, sparking the gas. The whole house went up with the loudest bang I'd ever heard. I threw myself to the floor, hit by a wall of heat, like I'd just opened the world's largest oven door. I heard the mofo of all whining sounds, followed by another walloping explosion. I got up off the dusty concrete floor and surveyed the damage. The staircase, smouldering. The door blown to splinters, thick smoke filling up the basement, acrid, eye-stinging stuff that got right into my lungs. I found a padlocked metal door, shot off the lock and yanked the stiff old thing halfway open, squeezing through the gap and climbing the few brick steps up into the back garden. It was carnage. Flames roared out of a gaping hole in the roof, broken glass, tiles and bits of home strewn all over the place, with policemen blown halfway across the lawn one stuck in a hedge and another staggering to his feet. He saw me walking across the grass and raised his rifle. I nonchalantly put a bullet in his chest. Down he went. 
I scaled the back wall easily and dropped to the other side in the immaculate rear lawn of a mansion house, where the police helicopter lay broken and smoking. The small tail rotor still spinning and the pilots crawling on elbows away from the wreckage. Standing frozen with an old-fashioned manual lawnmower was an old man in gardening clothes. I pointed the gun at him and politely informed him that I required the use of a car. The old man's car turned out to be a beige Merc from the Stone Age. Mint condition with pea-green leather seats parked on the drive behind high wooden gates. A fob for the gates had been left handily on the central console. While the engine warmed up, I took out the mystery object I'd stolen from Sarah and... Shit! No! The dream jumped ahead. Suddenly, I was Tokyo drifting across a busy intersection in rush hour traffic. I heaved the truck-sized steering wheel to the right and swerved around a double-decker bus. Two chasing black saloons did the same and stayed on my tail. They didn't look like police. I squeezed every last drop of performance from the beige mobile, but the non-antique cars were gaining fast. And now there was a black, unmarked chopper tracking me in the sky, the door sliding open and a sniper leaning out over the edge with the kind of rifle that could take down King Kong. I was somewhere in central London now. Familiar landmarks on the horizon, Big Ben, the Thames, the London Eye. Traffic was backing up nose to tail. I pulled a hard right down a narrow side alley, clipping the wall on the passenger side. The Merc was a tank and didn't sweat it. The chopper disappeared out of sight overhead and only one of the chasing cars made it down the alley, the other getting blocked off by a honking bin lorry. It was close your eyes and grit your bumhole time. After flying down a maze of narrow, blind passageways, it was almost a relief to hit a dead end and get boxed in by the chasing car. A mean-looking spook in a blue bomber jacket stepped out of the passenger door and plugged the Merc with machine gun fire, shattering the back window and piercing the front dash. I lay flat across the front seats and pushed open the passenger door. I leaned out a la Paris and double-tapped bomber jacket in the head. He bounced like rain off the front of his car a small puff of blood mist hanging in the air where his life used to be. I hung out of the door for a second or two, listening to the chopper circling overhead, waiting for the driver to make his move. He did, reversing back down the alley. I sat up behind the wheel and found reverse. The engine cut and died. No option but to bail out on foot. The enemy car blocked off the escape route to the main road, forcing me to dive down a side street, searching for an exit. A hundred feet away, I spotted a narrow passageway leading to a busy pedestrian street. I made a dash for it. I was almost there when I came across an intersection, exposed. I heard a beating, buzzing insect above the rooftops. By the time I looked up, it was too late. A flash and a pop later, I was knocked off balance. Flat on my back, face full of sky, a fierce pain burning a hole in my lower left gut. The sniper reloaded as hot blood seeped through my T-shirt. I fired back at the cockpit of the chopper. It pulled sharply away to the left, throwing the sniper's aim off target. His bullet whistled high and wide, punching a hole through a nearby no-entry sign. I scrambled to my feet, hand against gut, trying to stop the inevitable. Jesus! I felt everything. It was worse than my first period. 
as the helicopter circled and both chase cars appeared behind me at the start of the alley. I got lucky. There was a kid climbing off a scooter delivering pizza. I shoved him away before he could take the key from the ignition and steered the bike one-handed across the pedestrian street, scaring shoppers out of the way. I cut straight through a pair of automatic doors into a small boutique shopping mall, weaving in and out of the human traffic, whizzing past designer stores to easy listening music. I slid out the other side through the doors and out onto another pedestrian street. What I wasn't expecting was a Chinese toddler with a Spongebob balloon gawping at the pizza bike. I was about to turn his innocent little face into tiny tot mash, but Philippe proved he wasn't made of stone. Maybe just concrete blocks. I yanked hard on the right handlebar and slid smack into a bench. Oh man, that hurt. Pizza boxes spilled out onto the street, the boy blinking his baby browns at me in oblivious fascination before being gobbled up in the arms of his shrieking mother. I pushed the bike off me and hobbled away, suddenly feeling cold. The helicopter whopper whopped into view over the rooftops, distant police sirens rushing to join the party. I hobbled along, shaking off a bash on the leg, but starting to go woozy, barging into an old stone building through a set of heavy oak doors. Inside, I found rows of old, stiff, wooden seats, a thick maroon carpet and a long table under a white cloth at the front of the hall. Oh, and a huge plastic Jesus. Church. I headed over to the confession booth. Not a good sign. If you died in your dreams, you didn't really die, right? I stepped inside and drew the purple velvet curtain across. The booth was an antique wooden box with a bum-numbing bench and a crucifix mesh divide between sinner and priest. Philippe didn't strike me as the religious type. A bit late now. If God really was throwing a 24-7 pool party in the sky, I don't think professional assassins made the list. Not because of one quick confession while you bleed to death. I glanced to my right. The priest must have been on his break. I took a pack of gum from a trouser pocket and thumbed out a couple of pieces. I sat there chewing for a few seconds. What, Philippe? Is this your plan? Sit here and chew some gum? Great plan. With minty fresh breath, I pulled out the mystery object I'd stolen from Sarah and stuck the lump of sticky green gum on top. I then bent over double and pushed the object, gum first, against the bench until it held firm. I sat back upright. With the adrenaline of the chase wearing off, the gunshot wound stung like hell. I peeled my T-shirt off the wound to assess the damage. Blood gurgled out of a thumb-sized hole. I zipped up my jacket, slid the curtain open and tried to walk. The whole world spinning around me like I was on the waltzes. As an ageing priest hurried out of a back room to help me, I collapsed on the soft, shallow steps of the altar. From there on in, it was like being back in the recovery ward on the anaesthetic. I was faintly aware of police officers talking to the priest, of a man in plain clothes subtly taking a photo of my face with his phone, of the man being removed, paramedics running in, plastic Jesus II looking sad. Then I blacked out. Philippe was dead. Chapter 17. Uncertainty Principles I woke up to laughter. Rip-roaring, tear-streaming, leg-kicking laughter. A classroom full of faces all rubbernecking in my direction as Mr Hurd called my name in a soft, mocking way. 
Lorna, oh Lorna, time to wake up, Lorna. The class burst into fits and giggles all over again. I picked my head up off the desk and wiped the drool from my chin. Oh, awesome. Someone was recording it on their phone. I could see the headline, Dumb Sick Girl Drools All Over Desk, again. Mr Hurd was a hairy pea on legs with a ginger grey beard. He stared over his glasses at me from the front of the class. It was a warm, stuffy classroom with double physics on the menu. I mean, what did he expect? Sorry, sir, I said. I was listening. I was just, um, resting my face. Ah, good. Then you can explain the equation here. Even better, you can finish it for us. Sniggers rippled through the room. Mr Hurd held out the marker pen and invited me up. It was an impossible task for a rookie A-level student, and he knew it. So, Lorna, said Mr Hurd, now that your brain's had a nice little rest, maybe you can tell us what we're looking at. I clicked my tongue against the roof of my mouth, as if I was actually mulling it over. Like I had a clue. The equation, squiggled in fat green marker, resembled something off a pyramid wall. I felt the classroom walls closing in, my cheeks burning. Come on, brain, think sciencey thoughts. OK, say something, say anything. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? I asked. Mr Hurd rocked back in his scruffy brown brogues. Not bad, he said. Explain it to the class, please. The words tumbled out of me like I was possessed by Wikipedia. Well, it's like, as soon as you measure, say, the position of a quantum particle, you affect its momentum, and vice versa, meaning we can only measure the probability of where things will be and how they'll behave, not with any degree of certainty, so the universe is kind of fuzzy. Where the hell did that come from? Correct, Mr Hurd said, his eyebrow arching towards the board. I took a shot and wrote the number two where there was a gap in the equation. Mr Hurd said nothing. By golly, I was right. He wiped away Heisenberg's equation, grabbed a fat blue pen and squeaked out another brain scrambler as long as a short walk. OK, let's see you complete this one he said. Oh, come on, give me a sodding break. Why was he picking on me? It's not like I was the first student to fall asleep during a quantum particle wathalathon. I stood back and got a good look at the equation. You know that scene in The Matrix where Keanu Reeves gets the knowledge downloaded direct into his brain and suddenly he knows kung fu? Well, it was the same thing. I knew maths and science kung fu and I knew it better than Mr Hurd. There should be a Y here, I said, scribbling it down to complete the equation. Except you've made a bit of a boo-boo, sir. A what? Mr Hurd replied. A mistake, sir? There's a mistake in the middle here? The class erupted with laughter. Mr Hurd looked at me like I was insane. Don't be ridic. In that moment, he knew I was right. Besides, I said, there's an alternative way. I wiped the equation off the board and replaced it with a simpler one. There. I said, snapping the lid back on the pen, feeling a little high on the fumes. You could have heard a mouse eat a marshmallow, it was so quiet. Mr Hurd examined the board again, his eyes running back and forth over the equation, fingers tugging at the end of his beard. He fixed me with a stare. Who are you? Lorna, sir. Lorna Walker? You had me last year. 
the class laughed again, quick to jump on any innuendo. Had me for GCSE science, I meant. Mr Hurd wagged an accusing finger at me, but said nothing, as if he couldn't find the words. Then he simply walked straight out of the room. Ha ha, nice work, theory of everything, one of the lads shouted to a smattering of cheers and laughter. You just punked his ass, said another, trying to sound street. I returned to my seat and the class broke into loud chatter. I closed my textbook and checked my phone, a string of tweets and Facebook posts on what had just happened. Heard just lost it in physics. Old turd going apeshit. Scart it's just fucked turd up. And oh, another video of me to cringe myself to sleep to. Science 101 with Goodwill Munting. Watch this. I played the shaky footage of me accidentally ripping Mr Hurd a new one. Did I really sound that shrill? Thank God my hair and makeup looked okay, and I'd had the sense to wear my good jeans and that pretty pink top. Chapter 18. Ooh la la. Watching the video, there was no other reason for my sudden super geek spike other than Philippe and his worldly know-how but there would be an even bigger development. After re-watching the two vids of me in class, it suddenly dawned on me. I was actually looking half-human. Shiny, manageable hair, clear, glowing skin, a flat, toned belly, and best of all, I rolled up my jeans and angled my leg to get a good look. Yup, them cankles be gone. The hospital team had been lowering my dose, but not by all that much. Ha! Suck on that, Dr J, you little scaremonger. Old puffy pizza face was looking pretty damn tidy if she did think so herself. Becky sat next to me in French, laughing over my shoulder at the vids. First fighting, now science, she said, squeezing my arm. You're full of surprises, Lorne. It was a sunny afternoon, shafts of light breaking through the windows and amplifying the coral green in Becky's large, upturned eyes. She toyed absently with a strand of that glossy, dark hair that slipped off her slender brown shoulders, the top of a sticky pink bra peeking out at the side of her strapless white top, dazzling against her smooth brown skin. I caught the scent of her summer perfume in the air, before bitch-sapping myself in the mind. WTF, Lorna? Madame Fournier arrived and told us the drill for the afternoon's oral assessment. Half of us were up today the other half in tomorrow morning's lesson. Alphabetical order, she said. My spoken French was much like my written. Le shit. Yet, since I was a walker, I knew I was safe for the afternoon. I was a wonderful compartmentalizer and could easily remain in a state of blissful ignorance until the next day. Let's see. We'll do it a little differently this time, said Madame Fournier. We'll go in reverse order, starting with you, Yvonne. Crapsticks. Amir Zaman would be second, then Michelle Yates, then me. Amir was pretty useless like me, but super swap Michelle? She was a straight A in every way and I'd have to follow her. I tried to think of other things as we sat there listening to Amir murdering every word. Don't think of screwing up the test. Don't think of Becky's exposed legs crossing and uncrossing under the desk. And certainly don't think of the tip of her elbow resting gently against yours. I thought about the mystery object instead, sitting there under that bench in the church confession box. If, if the dreams were memories, did that mean the object was real? 
The dreams came chronologically, after all. Maybe my new heart was trying to tell me something, woofing and pouring at me like Lassie until I got the message and finished what it started. Did it think I was Philippe? Michelle Yates was up. How smug is she, Becky said. She loves showing off. I think Becky was more than a bit gel. Gel she wasn't smart like Lars, Johnny's multilingual squeeze. C'est magnifique, said Madame Fournier, inviting everyone to give Michelle a round of applause as she returned to her seat. Lorna, would you like to come up? Just like in physics earlier that day, I scraped back my chair and walked to the front of the class, ready to die on my big fat behind. Becky whoop-whooped in encouragement. Go, Lorna! My cheeks flushed in embarrassment. Ready? asked Madame Fournier. I guess so, I said, trying to remember a single word other than bonjour. I'll ask you a few simple questions and you answer me in French. Bien? Um, okay, I said. Madame Fournier spoke in a thick Gaelic accent that was kind of sexy. She was in her forties but had a decent bod, wavy black hair and high cheekbones. An oldie, but a goodie. Where did you go on holiday this summer? She asked in French. Nowhere. I was in hospital. I replied in perfect la Française. Ah, yes, of course, she said. Pardon-moi. Oh, this was weird. Not only did I know exactly what she was saying, I knew exactly how to reply with flawless pronunciation, and all without having to think consciously about it. This was Mr. Hurd in the physics off all over again. Like there was another mind inside me, a higher intelligence that stepped in when it thought I needed saving. Just like Mr. Hurd, Madame Fournier seemed totally blown away. The next question was harder. Can you describe what you're wearing? But of course, I said, a pink cardigan, skinny blue jeans and white trainers. Too easy. Next. Madame Fournier rattled through the questions and I fired back with word-perfect answers each time. After the last question, I remarked on how good her French was. What a cheeky cow. I couldn't resist. This was awesome. At this rate, I'd have my A-levels nailed by Christmas. Well done, Lorna, said Madame Fournier, taking my comment in good humour. You've obviously been practising hard. Ten out of ten. I looked around at Michelle Yates, sitting front and centre of the class. Her freckly pug nose flared. She only got a nine, and she was devastated. I think everyone could follow Lorna's example, Madame Fournier told the class. She led a polite round of applause as I returned to my seat, embarrassed all over again. I was used to scraping through life, not actually succeeding. I took my seat next to a delighted Becky. She leaned her mouth in towards my ear and asked me if I could stay over at hers that night and help her prepare for her test. Avoid the frosty atmosphere at home and share a bed with the Baxter. It would mean going against Auntie Claire, but it was so worth it. How did you get out? Becky asked me. A get out of jail free card, I said. The fun police is out for a meal with work. We sat cross-legged on her bed in our summer PJs. Me in a Hello Kitty nightshirt that did a good job of covering my scar. Becky in tiny hot pink shorts and matching Playboy bunny top. We had the French textbooks out in front of us, going through the likely questions for the next day. Becky had a big double bed in a big double bedroom with a thick, speckled grey carpet that felt lovely and soft on your feet. Not that you could see much, with half her wardrobe dumped on the floor. The strict tidying rules enforced by Auntie Claire weren't in place here. 
Becky's bedroom was in a permanent state of messy luxury in a detached house on one of the Swish estates where everything was newer, shinier and tidier. They had a shoes-off policy at the front door, a downstairs loo and everything. Becky's French wasn't much better than mine before my sudden transformation into Rosetta Stone. Unfortunately for her, she didn't have a multilingual assassin running through her bloodstream. And she wasn't big on graft or patience, checking her phone every couple of seconds to see if Johnny had posted, texted or messaged. I really want to learn French properly, she said, scrolling her finger up and down her phone. Me, plus a sexy French accent. There's no way Lars could compete with that. Then maybe we should go through the phrases again, I said. Oh yeah, okay, so tell me where you went on holiday this summer. Um, on vacances, Florida, je suis allée, Becky said in a clunky English accent. I gave it back to her how it should have sounded. See, I want to talk like that, she said to me. It sounds fucking hot when you say it. Becky put a hand on her hip and leaned in close to me. I guess I was playing the role of Johnny. She stuck out her tits and put on her best mock French accent. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? She said, tossing back her hair and pouting with those full lips that thinned and creased perfectly in the corners. My heart fluttered beneath my nightshirt. I wasn't just falling for Becky, I was skydiving from space. And once I did what I did next, there was no going back. Chapter 19 No Going Back I tried to stop myself. I really did. Instead, I lunged forward, grabbed a handful of Becky's mega hair, planted my lips on hers and left them there. Naturally, she was shocked, statue stiff, and when I let her go, she was staring wide-eyed at me, trying to process. I was about to burst into apology when she leaned in and kissed me back. It went on for at least 20 seconds. Technically, it wasn't my first. I'd kissed an orange before, imagining I was copping off with Ben Fielding. But Ben Fielding orange wasn't a patch on Becky. Everything tingled from head to toe. She felt warm and smelled of coconut, gently biting my lip on purpose. She was a much better kisser than the orange. But I got cocky, slipping a hand down her exposed lower back. It seemed to snap Becky out of the moment. She pulled out of the kiss and pushed me off by the arms. Wow, she said. Shit. We knelt across from each other, chests heaving. This doesn't make us lesbians, right? She asked. What? No, I said. Because I'm not. Me neither, I said. We're just... I searched for a normalising word. Curious? She suggested. Yeah, I said. BFF curious. Yeah, she said, fixing her hair. We're teenagers. It's normal. Self-discovery and all that. Absolutely, totally, totally normal. It's not like either of us fancy each other, she said. Say what? I laughed. I told Becky I needed the loo. I dumped my pill bag on top of the double sink and stared at myself in the wall-to-wall mirror. I sunk one pill after another, using tap water to swallow. What the pissing hell are you doing? I hissed at myself, wiping water away from my chin before popping another pill. She's your best friend. 
I jabbed an accusing finger at my reflection like my own drill sergeant. You need to get it together and stop acting like a pervy stalker. I ducked down for another drink, the last of the medication on my tongue. I broke for a tinkle and rinsed off my hands. Now, go back in there and act normal, I said, one last pep talk to self. Deep down, of course, I realised I was tush over tits in love with Becky. I just needed to bury the feelings and preserve the friendship. When I returned to the bedroom, she was propped up in bed, jabbing at her phone. A tidal wave of terror rose through my body and flushed into my cheeks. Was she already online, slacking me off? In my mind, Becky was launching weapons of mass embarrassment all over social media. OMG, you won't believe what at little Lorna has done. Lorna Walker's a fat little muff diver. Walker the stalker just face-raped me. Walker eats rug. If you're a girl and friends with LW, watch your lady junk. Hashtag gross. The thought of it made me struggle for breath. I had to rationalise. ASAP. About earlier, I said. Ah, it's no biggie, Becky said, batting away my concerns. We're hidden under the bridge. Hey, look at this, she said, showing me her phone. So cute. To my relief, she was looking at pictures of kittens in fancy dress. Sod it. I need to tell you something, Bex. It's true. I needed to tell someone who wasn't a doctor or shrink about the dreams. Why not, Becky? If she could take a lip lunge from a bestie, she could handle this. I've been having these, um, dreams, I said. About me? she asked, fluffing her hair back. No, no, of course not. Oh, she said, her shoulders slumping a touch. About killing people, I said, as we plumped our pillows and slid down under the covers. What do you mean? Becky asked, turning side on to face me. I'm in the body of an assassin, some guy called Philippe, and I'm going around the world bumping off VIPs in different countries. The dreams are really violent. I filled her in on all the bloody details, including the object hidden in the confession booth of the church. Dreams are dreams, Becky said. I once dreamt I was a slice of ham. No, you don't understand, I said. The dreams are all linked. They're chronological. Chrono what? In date order. Becky flicked off the light and we lay there, eyes adjusting to the dark. And then there's the new skills. I said, science, French, the alley. Now that was insane, Becky said. I'd been wondering about all that. Plus, Law, you ordered a burger that night? You've been a veggie since forever? I know, right? I said, and what, suddenly I really like scotch? The only drink I'd had before that was communion wine. Becky asked me what I thought was going on. I told her about what Dr Tariq had said. That is some fucked up shit. Do you believe him? I don't know. I guess it's hard to argue. I'm afraid of what I'll do next. What did the doctors at the hospital say? She asked. They think I'm psycho as it is. They tried to put me on another drug. I just want to enjoy life, not walk around like a zombie. Becky fell silent. Was she thinking? Was she asleep? What about this object you mentioned? She asked, propping herself up on one elbow. My eyes had adjusted enough that I could make out the contours of her face and hair. What about it? I asked. Why not see if it's for real? She said. See if it's there, in the church. I let the idea spin for a moment. Of course, but... 
even if it exists, I don't know where the church is, I said. How do I find it? Hmm, well, if, like you say, all this stuff is coming from your heart, maybe you should just, you know, follow it, see where it takes you. Becky was easily the shiniest tool in the box, but far from the sharpest. The simplicity of her wisdom threw me. What a fab idea. Oh, I've never been before, she said, reaching out and grabbing me on the arm. We could check out the sights while we're down there. Buckingham Palace, the Tower of London, Oxford Street. Yeah, but we need cash to get down there. I wasn't allowed a Saturday job, and Bex rarely had any money that wasn't invested back into her walk-in wardrobe. We'll get the bus down, she said. I'll plug the money off my mum. Won't she ask you what it's for? Nah. Anyway, I'll just tell her it's for textbooks. She never checks. If you wanted to squeeze even a quid out of Auntie Claire, you had to prepare a PowerPoint business case. It made me realise just how much of a nightmare she was. We'll have to go midweek, though, Becky said. Peasy, I said, we'll just wag off. It's not like I had anything new to learn, after all. Becky squealed in excitement. Road trip! She turned over so her back was to me. I lay my head on the goose feather pillow and stared at the outline of her head. I wanted to reach out and touch her. No, bad Lorna, leave it. God, having a dead guy's mind inside mine was a nightmare. Why did I have to be so weird all the time? Why couldn't my body just play ball and let me be normal? Winning back control was like house training a puppy. I had to learn what was off limits and when it was okay to poo. Play it low, play it straight. My entire social existence depended on it. This has been Truly Deadly. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Ella Lynch.